Hey there, welcome to the Mental Perk Podcast. I'm Carla Hutcherson, licensed professional counselor. And I'm Brandy Mock, entrepreneur, author, and community leader. And we're here to talk about real people, real issues, and real talk. Hey there, and welcome back to the Mental Perk. We are so excited to have a special guest today, Israel Lewis. He is the founder and director of the Sulphur Springs Christian Counseling Center. And so we are so thankful to have his perspective and for him to tell his very interesting story today. So welcome, Israel. Hey, guys. How are you? We're doing great. (laughs) I love Israel. He's so energetic and always so much full of energy. So I really love that. Um, Israel, so, you know, you and I both ended up from Abilene Christian University. Go Wildcats. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) And both of us ended up in the mental health field. So it's been pretty interesting. And we've crossed paths a couple of times over the years. Um, But tell us a little bit about your uh, counseling center at Sulphur Springs. Well, we get to stay hidden out in the uh, deep piney woods of East Texas that will soon be uh, freezing over here soon with this crazy (laughs) Arctic wind coming in. But we've been here uh, almost 25 years. We moved to East Texas in 2000, and I developed a little small private practice that just kind of slowly started developing across Northeast Texas. I've been in uh, church work for a long time, and so I started working with pastors and my dad was a professor at ACU, our alma mater, and he really had a passion for adolescent psychopathology, and that's just a fancy word for, you know, at-risk teens. So <laughs> that's what we've been doing a lot of uh, kids, and then as you get a little older and a little bit more challenging to relate to the younger people, uh, more marriage and family the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah, I have found myself getting, you know, getting more into that. I worked a lot with adolescents, and now I'm finding myself doing even more young adults in college and more uh, relationship um, counseling. And so it's, I think it's so rewarding to see uh, families uh, really work work together and, and find that healing process. It's fun, and you've heard the quote, if you can find a, a job that you really love, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Well, I love that, too, and I know that you live that uh, motto every single day. So, um, well, tell us about what you, your kids are doing. I know your kids are, are um, doing some exciting things. What's your family up to? Well, we've got two grown boys. My oldest is right down the road from you. He's in uh, life insurance, and... Then we've got our youngest that's about to graduate after some college golf, and he's going to go into flight school and become a pilot. So we finally were able to get our daughter that my mom uh, had been begging us to get from my wife, and it's a four-legged furry uh, golden doodle. So we (laughs) were able to fill the void of empty nesting. (laughs) Well, we at Mental Park love our fur babies. They are a big part of Mm -hmm. our life. I love it. Well, you know, uh, Israel, we were talking a little bit just a second ago about some of the changes we've seen over the years in counseling and just some of the uh, things that have impacted us uh, socially and impacted our patients. And so I'd love to discuss and get some of your perspectives on those such interesting topics. Um, and you even took it back further than I would have when you went all the way back to 2008 when social media came around. So um, I would love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, I, I think, Carla, we just really took a, a hard left with um, social media, with uh, Twitter. It was, it was a platform of, you know, you hate to be brutally honest, but it was more than just 
criticism, but there were some all-out hate. And that just started a, a downward trend in, in culture because then you had the sad introduction of, of Instagram where the uh, young females just began to be crippled with a comparison trap. And then we kind of rocked along and uh, tried to recover. And then, of course, with 2020, uh, the virus hit us right in the face with just realizing how big of control freaks that we all are. We, mm. You know, we all didn't realize how much we wanted to be in control until we were made painfully aware that we had no control over our lives and the government or powers that be was able to tell you exactly what to do. And of course, all the rebellion that came with that was certainly interesting from a psychological perspective. <laughs> yeah, and I agree with you. And I, I'm still a control freak, and it's still hard for me to think back. I think I have a little yeah. PTSD from that as well. So. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> yeah. well, yes, when we get into it, uh, I'm recovering from some PTSD because uh, when you go through a, a traumatic situation, you realize how even more out of control life can be and how little control you have. <laughs> yeah, and that is such a tough place to be because, like I said, I think we, you know, we just we're born with that kind of need to control things in our life, and we we go along and we go along and we take for granted that when you don't have that control, how much it can uproot your life and you know how you yeah. think about things and your perspectives. And so, I think we we are going to be getting into that in just a little bit because you have such an interesting story. But first, I want to talk about a little bit even before we get into what your story is, because you've just you've been such a health fanatic. You do all your running, you do all these activities outdoor with your kids and with your friends, and I think you even did. Uh, you know, running competitions and things with your friends from college for a long time, and y'all kept up doing that. Am I is that am I telling that correctly? It it is, Carla. You know, you knew a little bit about my shenanigans back in college, and <laughs> when we, you know, try to make the transition into into adulting, it can be uh, difficult. And I couldn't afford the counseling that I needed personally, so I just went out and started pounding the pavement to try to make sense of the nonsense and. I've been running marathons for, oh, about 20 years, and we got into some triathlons, and uh, when we hit the midlife crisis at 40, instead of the Corvette or gold <laughs> chain, we went and did the Ironman triathlon, so that was a lot of fun, and just precious memories and the camaraderie, you know, that you have with all the guys competing and making the trips, whether it's, you know, quilting, hunting, golfing, cooking, you just, you want to find your tribe, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I bring that point up because as we get into your story, knowing that you were so much into all of those things for so long and then not being able to do them and not knowing if that was going to return, you know, so those are some things yeah. that I wanted yeah. to the audience to really understand about what your state of mind was during this time. Mm. Yes, definitely was a uh, <laughs> incredible transition going from marathon running to uh being held hostage to a hospital bed. Yeah, absolutely. So just to, to go right into that, back what year was it that, that this happened, that you went in for just a routine gallbladder surgery? So, Carla, next week will be two years, actually. Oh, wow. 20, uh, 22, yeah. That's amazing. I, I was thinking it was longer than that, but that seems like mm -hmm. it's just so, so much has happened in a short amount of time. You know, that's just crazy. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like with, with any major event, even trauma, sometimes it seems like years ago, and then on some days it seems like yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure for you, it seems like yesterday, a lot of days. So um, <laughs> so what happened? So you went in this for, for this gallbladder surgery. I'm sure you had a great attitude about it, like you always do, cracking jokes, talking to people. And what happened? Well, I've been really kind of, uh, hollering at my neighbor across the street. We're always doing a fun neighborly banter because uh, she had said that she had had the surgery on Friday and was at church on Sunday. And so as I'm driving out of the parking lot, I said, not only will I be at church, I'll be there early uh, because it's supposed to be, you know, routine in and out and uh, prop your feet up and then ready to go the next day. Sadly, doctors make, you know, mistakes. Humans are far from perfect, and they sewed me up not knowing that I was bleeding internally. Oh, wow. So I became septic. And uh, within a couple of hours, I just started having some sharp shooting pain, and then it went to, like, literally daggers and, and swords on either side of me to where I'm crawling in the bed trying to make it. And, uh, across the house, we had to call the ambulance and rush us back to the hospital. And they do a CAT scan and immediately open you back up here at our little county hospital in East Texas. And uh, it was too windy to be uh, helicoptered. And so they just jumped me in an ambulance and I was rushed to Baylor Hospital. And for the next six months, would uh, fight for my life. It was 31 surgeries over the next oh, six months. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Isn't that wild? Wow. I, I'm, well, here's the deal. I'm, I'm trying to give our listeners a visual. Sulphur Springs and where you got taken to, which I'm assuming was a big hospital in Dallas, correct? Correct. Yeah. So we are, you know, about an hour and a half uh, east of, of Dallas, and we went all the way to Baylor, downtown Dallas. Yeah, so that's a long drive, and it and is. you're you're in pain, you're in tons of pain, and you're critical at yeah, this point. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, sepsis is at that point. Though, did they know at that point when they were ambulating you from point A to point B that you were actually suffering from sepsis at that time, or did you find out that after you got to Baylor and Dallas? So, Brandy, it's funny when you ask, you know, how I was feeling or, or, or thinking. A, a small detail that I guess I didn't share with you. When, when they opened me uh, back up, the emergency uh, surgery, they, they did not close me back. I was in such bad shape. They put me on a vent, and they shipped me to Dallas. So I actually was clueless. I didn't have a clue wow. for, for literally a couple of months later because I was so out of it and on painkillers the whole time. It's been a couple of weeks in ICU, um, but it would be far down the road before I woke up and realized, well, we're not in Kansas anymore. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, and I go back to the timeline. So you did the gallbladder surgery as like a outpatient procedure, like you were home. And how long were you home before you realized something was not right? Just a couple of hours. Wow. Okay. So that you went down yeah. quick. Very quick. Yes, ma'am. So um, when you called, because I'm, I'm assuming you called whoever your contact was and said, hey, I'm not feeling right. And I know normally people are, are trying to talk you off. I've had my gallbladder removed. And thank God I didn't have any complications. But I was immediately taken in for, for the hospital. I immediately did surgery. They did a high scan on me. 
and said, you've got to go in because it was at the point of bursting. But I, I think a lot of people don't realize that after you have surgery, it's very normal for these doctors and for the staff to go, well, this is normal. Your pain, you know, you, some people experience more pain than the others. You were like, no, absolutely not. Something's really mm. off. Is that, that's where you were at? Brandy, you, you, yes, you, you hit the nail on the head, but you know, because I'm Mr. Wonder Boy and, and lucky. Yeah. Uh, yes. All, all the doctors said, you know, Hey Lewis, this pain is understandable, but typical and normal. Mm-hmm. And so when they took me back to the ER, I spent the night um, without having surgery because they still thought everything was okay. And sadly they did an x-ray and the radiologist missed a, a few things. And so it wasn't until the next morning after I sat there all night and my precious wife, who if you ever go into the hospital, you hope you have a, a spouse that's <laughs> yeah. as you know, protective as you know mine was, she just starts screaming, uh, d- demanding that, hey, they do another x-ray, they look into this. And finally they got hold of a surgeon and he investigated, looked into it, and said, yes, he's in trouble. Let's open him back up. And at that point, I was in too bad a shape and, you know, on death's door. Well, and I think think the important thing, too, is to listeners realize the importance of having someone to advocate for you while you're there going through that situation. And your wife, the fact that she insisted, which is huge, because a lot of people are so intimidated by the medical field. They think they're the experts, but I'm like, the experts are the ones that have to live with you every day and know, <laughs> know that yes, there's something yes. wrong. Right. And she's an expert of you, right? Yeah. She knows your mannerisms. She knows that you're not a complainer. She knows these kinds of things. So she, she knew something was wrong for sure. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. So you get, you're in the, the ambulance. They're leaving this wound open all the way to Dallas. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Now, they had it packed, I guess, with gauze to, to help draw sure. the infection because at that point, they didn't know you're necessarily septic. They just knew something had been, something was off, something was wrong. Correct. Okay. So, you get to Baylor and then from, I guess, you don't have a perspective because you were out of it and on a ventilator. So, what what was told to you? What happened after that? Well, at that point, you know, it, it was really wild. Much down the road, I'm able to relive this story through my wife, through the pictures and, and the stories. But, you know, like we said, I was out of it for a few months. But, uh, you know, basically, our, our world is turned upside down because our two college kids, you know, didn't even come back home for the surgery because we're thinking it's uh, routine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my wife is being sat down by the surgeon saying wherever the boys are, you need to call them and get them uh, over here. And we're praying that he makes it through the night. And if he's lucky, he will. Wow. Oh my gosh. So, so yeah. let me ask you a question. And I know I may be fast forwarding a little bit. This is what's so interesting to me. There was such a short time period. Usually sepsis is going to take a minute to, to take a, you know, take toll in the body. You're talking a couple hours after surgery. So my question to you is, did they nick something while they were in there that caused, an, you know, caused this to... I did. Okay. Okay. So we'll get into that when we get further in. I know that you didn't know a lot about it, you know, because you were out of it, but I'm just like, this doesn't, it just sounds off, you know, being <laughs> that you got so sick so, so fast after the surgery, it sounds like something went yeah. wrong during surgery. They nicked something or something. Yeah. And what a terrifying yep. experience for your wife and your sons yeah. to be going through this. I mean, and to may have to make that call to your kids. Yeah. 
you can you imagine? Now, I'll tell you what's really wild, guys, and I have asked so many physicians to help me understand this, and they, they can't in regards to painkillers. Um, I remember talking to the people as they were loading me in the ambulance. And what's so neat about a small town, you know, everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even half of the physicians and nurses, you know, have been clients of mine where we coached, you know, Little League Baseball together. But I was able to, six and eight months later, call these people uh, by name and thank them wow. for loading me in the back of the ambulance. And I, I literally remember their words that they were whispering uh, into my ear. I, I have no visual uh, recollection of memory, but I, I remember uh, crystal clear. In fact, I was able to speak at a, a fireman's uh, banquet at, at Christmas and was able to thank them for hauling ass because that's what they said they were going to do. <laughs> that is so amazing. And it's yeah. so interesting what the brain remembers and, you yeah. know, what really sets so? in. Yeah. And the fact that you remember them and were able to thank them for that is just phenomenal. That's just so mm. interesting. It's just such a neat thing that the brain is such a complicated thing. And so the more you mm-hmm. learn about it, the more it just amazes you. Um, yes. So, Let's get back to now the, the boys are being called in from college. They have no idea that this is even going on. They're, they're, they're getting there. So what does the story go from there? And, you know, and I have, do have to say this, your wife and your sons kept such a detailed log on Facebook. Like the, you know, mm. if you were on Facebook and watching this all play out, they were just so good at keeping people informed and walking through it. And I think part of it was probably even for them to process it and help mm-hmm. them kind of get through it. But it just was, you know, you, it's like we were living it with them in a way. And it was just such, I don't know if you've been able to go back and read their post or not. I have Carla. And I, I think you're really right. They may not have even been aware of the uh, cathartic nature. And of course, that's just a big word those clinicians like to throw around, <laughs> which is, you know, getting it off your chest. Maybe you've heard that the conversation is the cure. Yeah. But just being able to talk about it. But the minute we feel heard, we begin to heal. And I think there's no question that was helpful in so many perspectives for the folks back home to get updated, but for them just to be able to process what was going on. Yeah. So what do you know from that point when the boys get there? Well, I know that there were a lot of tears. There were a lot of prayers. And um, my beautiful wife, for the folks that are uh, people of faith, she had to have a very difficult uh, spiritual conversation Mm. because uh, we, we are believers. And the first thing that she said was, boys, we are going to pray. But if uh, the Lord doesn't answer our prayers the way that we want them to for uh, dad, that God is still good and yeah. he's still faithful and, and we're going to still trust him. And that was a really, really tough, obviously, uh, yes. br- did I say brutal yeah. uh, prayer of surrender? Because, you know, back to our recovering control freak days, you know, we want so bad to just act like we can order off the menu. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, you made it through that night and, you know, whatever reason that was, and you made it through that night. And then what did your journey look like? Well, we made it through that night and then there would obviously be uh, many more nights. Yeah. Uh, Six months, actually. Um, Such a long, hard process of 
just staring at the clock and watching the little hands go tick, tick, tick. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I had been such an active uh, outdoorsman uh, guy. And uh, I don't know if I've told you the end of just the, the medical journey, but after five and a half months, and then I walked across the street uh, to rehab, well, I mean, they rolled me across, I was able to come home for six days. It was less than a week. And it was precious because we've lived in this small town, and maybe just because everybody loves my wife, they had this huge parade and the <laughs> fire trucks and the ambulance and the folks are on the bridges. It, it was just precious. But, but guys, I, I had some major blood pressure issues. And one morning when I stood up about 7 a.m., I collapsed and I fell and I broke my back. Oh, my I did not know goodness. that, Israel. I had no <laughs> idea that happened. So I learned something. I didn't know that hospitals can be full. Um, they take me to the ER and they said, well, Israel, guess what? You've got to go back to Baylor, but they're full. So I had to wait four days in our emergency room here in Sulphur Springs to where I went back for another month. And I can laugh about it now. You laugh so you don't cry. But, but by far, um, that was emotionally when I reached my breaking point because you get the homecoming parade and you finally you know, made it. And then it's like, you know, holy crap. Are you, you know, we're right back where we started. Are are you kidding me? Well, just the fear of knowing that and going, man, this went so bad on a routine surgery. And then if you have to have something down (laughs) on your back, like, are we going through this again? I am just in shock. I had no idea that Mm. you went through Mm. that. I can't Mm. even imagine. I mean, if we're talking about PTSD, from just the original <laughs> problem, and now you got PTSD uh, on steroids. I'm pretty sure of it. There's no question about it. And, the, you know, the reality, my buddies would laugh, but they said, you know, Israel, you only get one coming home parade, so it's time <laughs> to, you know. <laughs> and we laugh. But, you know, uh, pe- people do move on. And at yeah. that point, of course, people were terribly sad, but, you know, it can only stay a headline for so long. There's another crisis in town. Yeah. Or across the state. And I was aware of that. You can only, you know, get so many uh, texts and phone calls until they're moving on to somebody else they're a little bit more concerned with. Yeah. So back us up. You we go. You get to Dallas. You get to Dallas. We talked about. I mean, you, I think you mentioned thirty something surgeries. What? So you're they they get you there, and I know you're in and out. So I know you relied on your wife to kind of walk you through the next process of things, but. What was it when you got there? What was it they told you had caused the complications from the surgery? So it's called a thermal injury. Apparently, they will uh, cauterize um, after a procedure. i would heard of um, kidney stones forever. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of gall gallstones. Uh-huh. So apparently, when they went to e- extract the stones, there was an injury uh, that occurred there. And I was uh, bleeding and they didn't know, and apparently just continued to uh, unravel, almost like a, a rope coming apart. Uh-huh. Wow. And uh, it was just so difficult for them to repair that, that the surgeries would be unsuccessful, or they would have to find another consult to even figure out what they were going to uh, need to do or uh, let more time uh, pass to where the inflammation, you know, could die down to where they could kind of get in there. 
But it was, uh, they said it was the perfect storm and the uh, worst location that you would want an injury to occur. <laughs> you know, what do you mean, right? Israel, and I'm even thinking about this as you said this is two years ago, and that was just on the cuffs of COVID. I mean, yeah. what a crazy experience. And you were probably on a ventilator for how long? I think I was on a vent for um, at least two weeks the first time. Then I went back on it uh, for a little bit longer. But absolutely, everybody's still wearing a mask. Uh-huh. And um, I, I had a situation with all my medication that they were concerned that I was building up a tolerance. Uh-huh. And so in addition to the mask, I forget the big word they used, uh, they would have to just down up, sometimes wear two layers to come in and see me. I felt like the science fiction, you know, alien. Uh, it was it was so difficult. Um, just the, the, the disconnection, as we all know, through, through COVID, but mm-hmm. then even them not wanting a whole lot of visitors in my room. And that's where you understand, you know, the, the, the military uses solitary confinement yeah. as, punish, as, as punishment. And you were able to quickly understand uh how that occurs. I quickly, painfully understood how trauma changes the brain, how it literally changes your way of thinking in a, in a painful way. Right. Yeah. They, I mean, they literally had you quarantined, basically. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. it almost, yeah. I almost look at it as like when they quarantine you because there's some kind of infection going on and CDC's got to come in and investigate and all that good stuff. They, they're limiting access to you. They're Correct. taking precaution on you know, gearing up to treat you, and then you're you're isolated, and then there's COVID. And, and you know yeah. what, Israel? There's something, you know, there's all kinds of research about psychosis for people who are in that situation, who are in the hospital for a long term. Did you ever experience any of that? Uh, I did, thankfully. And he, <laughs> you know, I, I, I can laugh about it now that it's been so long, but uh, some of the first stuff that was pretty rough was just uh, side effects from the painkillers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I never did any of the hard stuff in college like some of our buddies did. But, <laughs> you know, when, when, when you see the uh, uh, spiders and the bugs crawling on the walls or you feel like your skin is crawling, it is, guys, it was just terrifying. Oh, wow. And thankfully, again, you know, my wife is right there. Um, but just some brutal, uh, brutal uh, hot flashes. It gave me an empathy for you ladies with premenopause. I would just be <laughs> pouring sweat. And, it, you know, I, I could they would rub ice all over me. And then I would just go straight to a freezing thing like I was naked in Alaska, you wow. know, but, uh, under the snow. And so uh, they, they said that was just a body trying to uh, regulate itself. Uh, and sometimes some high fevers that were spiking. But, yes, the, the, the psychotic... Uh, episodes of um, even outer body experiences where I got to uh, float above my uh, uh, body a few times. Very, very interesting. But the the levels of anxiety and depression that now I get to use as as empathy with with my clients. That's what I was about to think about was just the fact that you've gone through this. And as a mental health professional, we're taught, you know, through our education, all of these different things and all these symptoms. But now you're experiencing them. (laughs) Yes, I was able to go from uh, clinician to client. And I can tell you, 
not a good place to no be. Not, to, <laughs> not, well, it's not one we would choose. Yeah. Um, but, but I learned so quickly that, again, one of these big fun words we like to throw in, prognosis. Uh-huh. It's a fun idea of, well, how, you know, how's he doing? How do we think they're going to do? I was able to understand it's never the crisis. It's about the connections. Yeah, and and it's funny you you say that, and there's this whole, you know, I I sit here and hear you talk about your faith and stuff, but the humbling experience of treating patients, clients, counseling people for so long, not probably connecting like you did after you went through this experience and going, okay, I've been humbled here. Like, I have been completely humbled with my experience and what I just experienced well, Brandy, it was, if I'm just, you know, being brutally honest, since you ladies are uh, my friends, I, I, I was more than humbled. I, I, I was a, a broken man. Yeah. And the, uh, the, the panic attacks, the, the nightmares, you know, I, I've heard stories of, of veterans that could not go into Walmart or a sexual assault gal that, that couldn't go to the grocery store. You just couldn't be around people. But until I started freezing in my tracks, I couldn't relate or understand. And then I was able to say, okay, I get it. I, wow. I understand. Wow. Mm. What were some of those areas were that were the hardest for you as you're fighting through that PTSD and, and going through what you're going through? Um, what were some of those triggers? Well, by far, uh, public and, and people. It's crazy enough because, you know, my personality, I've been Mr. You know, <laughs> uh, outgoing and did, yes. you know, public speaking and, I did a lot of uh, even coaching for uh, teams in the area, doing the sports psychology. But with with trauma and how it retrains the brain, uh, again, the fancy word is called cognitive distortions. In East Texas, we just call it stinking thinking. Yes. For, <laughs> we use that term here in know, Dallas, too. Yes, yes, I love so. it. I love it. <laughs> well, well. Gals, for for so long, I had two people beside me, my wife and a and a nurse, uh-huh. a home health care nurse. And so you just get used to that, that seclusion. And so when I'm trying to go back into uh, the, the real world and public, my first Sunday back to church, and we don't attend a, a huge mega church. This is small. I live in a town of about 10,000 people. So it's about 200 people on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. It's a church where I, I raised my boys in. I've been an elder at this church for 10 years. I I made it about halfway through the lobby, and I looked at my wife, and the room started spinning, mm-hmm. and I turned at her, and I said, you get me out of here as quickly as you can. And, guys, I'm, I'm freaking out. I'm going, this, this is absolutely crazy. Yeah, I this mean, what you. is going on? I, yeah. It, well, it's, it's not me. And I, I, I know these people, that these people are safe. And so I came home and I called a guy that graduated, uh, a mutual friend, Coy Roberts. He's over mm-hmm. in D- Dallas and uh, he's been my personal shrink. And I said, Coy, what, what's going on? I don't understand this. And he says, Israel, you understand, you have to understand that each person represented an, another source of, of vulnerability because you didn't know if this person was going to hug you or slap you on the back or stare at you and and so the, the uh, more people in that room, those were more ways in which you didn't have control. Wow. And you'd had such control, at least a, a perceived amount of control, you know, back, back at home. 
But that that was my first introduction uh, to panic attacks and just the real social struggles there. Uh, but the depression, I never struggled with uh, such difficulty because with chronic pain and you have such an empathy mm-hmm. for the elderly uh, and folks that just live with, you know, the, the, the crippling back pain. Um, and even with, you know, endurance uh, competing and, and running marathons and triathlons, you know, I've had every injury you can have with the knees and, and, and ankles and sciatic nerves. But um, I, I never had the degree of, of pain where, and if I'll just be honest with you guys, in in private practice, in having so many people sadly take their lives with, with suicide, I was finally able to understand that I don't think people want to truly hurt themselves. They just I agree with that too. They want the pain to go away. Yep. Yeah, hundred yep. percent. And when I could finally connect those dots of here I am, Mister Peter Positive, and now thinking of ways of okay, if I pulled those cords out of the IV bag or could I get the pillowcase over my head just because at this point the, the brain's trying to fix the problem you and all the brain knows stop. Yeah. You needed the pain to stop. You, you're wanting the pain to stop. Absolutely. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's so intense, Israel. And the fact that you're describing it, I, I mean, I know so many people can relate to that. Yeah. You know, there's so many people in our audience who can relate to that. Well, and then we become our own worst enemy. Because with depression, we understand, uh, I call it the turtle syndrome, arms and legs in the shell, okay? Uh-huh. So yep. the, the, the last thing you want to do is reach out and call a friend or even let your friends know that you're struggling when they call and check on you. So I got busted a few times. My friends would call and say, hey, we want to bring you dinner. And I'd say, oh, we already have a meal coming. Thank you. Well, I was lying at my rear because I didn't want them to come see me. Wow. I was so depressed. And you just come into this shell, again, which begins to make it all the more worse, sadly. Yes. And I, I, I believe the, the opposite of depression is not happy or joyful. It's connections. Yeah. Be- because depression brings about such a disconnection. Mm-hmm. That is so incredibly true. And I love the way you just verbalize that it's a, it's about connection because I don't think people really put those pieces together for depression. You know, there's such a misunderstanding of depression and the fact that it's not a choice. It's something that your brain is going through and it's just such a, you know, it's, it's, people don't truly understand. And I think that the way you just described it really helps to hit that home that it's about connection and people with depression feel disconnected. You're, you're right. I, I think the quality of our life will always be determined by the quality of our relationships. Yeah, uh, 100%. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and we, that brings us to your relationships, your support system, your amazing family. I mean, how did this affect their mental health? You know, what's really incredible is, um, I, as you guys know, trauma is almost like uh, pitting back the, the layers of an onion. Mm-hmm. And for my oldest boy, who uh, literally for six months just came and lived at the hospital with uh, my wife, with him being able to process it every day, his healing was so much farther down the road than my son who was away from college. And he was mm-hmm. playing 
uh, collegiate golf. So he just kind of had to compartmentalize. Mm -hmm. And it was very interesting when I finally did get home and started to ask some questions. I I could tell that he had not even begun to to go there. It was kind of like, you know, be careful pulling that Band-Aid off where you may have a gusher. And there were some times where, you know, for the first time he was dealing with it. That's incredible. And, you know, as a therapist, a lot of times we, you know, we are preaching the importance of therapy and we're talking about it's so important to get help. Um, but sometimes as a therapist, we don't always reach out for that help. So what have you and your family done to make sure that you guys are taking care of yourself, working through this PTSD and really, you know, focusing on finding a way back to normal, if you want to call it that? Isn't that a great question? Well, I don't think you ever get over a trauma. I think you get used to it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, we, we we have a new normal because their uh, father, who used to be the, the life of the party, uh, now was aged about, about 20 years. And instead of, you know, jumping around with, you know, springs in, in my shoes, I've got some really rough neuropathy. That was a fun word I've never even heard of. Didn't know. <laughs> it's a $10 uh, word. It's a $10 word, but I'm not, I'm not able to stand uh, for uh, long periods of, of time. It, it, as long as I'm walking, those muscles will kind of help the blood flow. But uh, apparently, uh, we've all heard of uh, muscle atrophy, you know, uh, use or lose it. Because I was laying in a hospital bed for six months, those veins and arteries, they did not have to fight gravity. You know, wow. when you guys are, 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 yeah. are standing, your blood goes to your feet. But then, you know, thankfully, it goes right back up to your brain mm-hmm. so we can, you know, keep functioning. But when those guys go into retirement, your veins and your arteries, they, they think they're done. So that's one of my challenges with just fatigue and, and lack of energy. But again, it's not about excuses. It's about making adjustments. And so um, they're grateful I'm alive. I'm grateful uh, to be alive. We, we learned, as we talked about, the power of connection. Mm-hmm. And we learned the, the, the importance of perspective. The fact that I'm still alive and still here. And, you know, you get to make do with what you have and play the cards that you dealt. Well, I love, I love that perspective because I think it's going to help so many people be able to understand that, you know, it's a process. And if you don't process it, it'll process you. Yeah. I love it. And so it it is true. But I I think, I think to me also too, Israel, is the fact that you're able to articulate so perfectly the emotions you, I think it's so interesting hearing you and then hearing Carla, you, you counsel people on navigating through your emotions every day. And I don't think I could have articulated what you said better than just saying now that you've walked through it, you have a better understanding of the reality of it. And I think that is yeah. so impactful to the listeners. Well, Brenda, can I even tell you that we talked about, you know, Carla and I's transition of going from, play therapist to uh, a joy with, with teenagers and now more uh, towards adults. I am almost ready to specialize in, in just trauma. Wow. It's the majority of, of my work now. I just have a passion for it. Anytime I hear of a traumatic car wreck or house fire or parents who, who lose a, a, a child or who've had multiple surgeries that have gone wonky like mine, 
I, I cannot get there fast enough. I wow. cannot let them know, guys, if, if I can get through it, you can too. And there's somebody that, that understands. And, you know, it's a trauma bonding that gives you the greatest joy because you're able to find a purpose for your pain. Mm-hmm. You, you, have, you have to find a way to, to redeem it. You know, Israel, in in our field, we need people who specialize in trauma Mm -hmm. and especially people who have been through trauma, because it's one thing for me to work with someone who's who's had a trauma that I don't truly understand. But you've walked in the shoes Mm -hmm. and nothing is more therapeutic than that for you to be able to be have that level of empathy for them. And I tell you to our listeners, it it gives them such a wonderful opportunity to think about the grand singing difference between sympathy and empathy. Mm-hmm. Sympathy, I'm writing, I'm writing a card, and I feel sorry for you. But to understand that God wants to use their pain and whatever their system of faith is, when 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 they can find a purpose for their pain and redeem their pain, like you shared my family writing the Facebook post, it becomes such a cathartic healing experience because yes, you're blessing others, but we know that when you help somebody else, you're, you're helping yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're continuing your own healing. And I asked you what you were doing to kind of help yourself continue down this process. And I think that's a huge part of, of your own healing. It has been tremendously. Well, I Of course, yes. Professional care. No, I'm sorry to interrupt. The importance <laughs> of pro- professional care, absolutely. I encourage both my boys uh, to contact a, a therapist and my wife and I as well, making sure that we were not going to minimize in, in any way the struggles or the trauma that we've been through. So, yeah, and I was I'm so glad grateful. you pointed that out because it is so important for people to seek help. You know, don't do this alone. Don't go through traumatic experiences alone. Don't go through depression or anxiety alone because the more that you work on it, the better it gets. And there's so much treatments that we can do to make these things better that you don't have to be in it alone. I love your, I love your motto that you put everywhere. We're better together. And, you know, Brandy and I (laughs) truly believe in that we have a similar Mm. motto because it is about connection. It is about really caring about each other and being in this life together. You know, don't be so isolated, you know, realize that it's so important to connect with your community, with your family, with your friends. That's how we all stay healthier. Well, just circling back to our social media discussion, we, we're all aware that with technology, we have never been more connected. There could be some uh, terrible earthquake off the coast of Mozambique, and in 30 seconds, the entire globe finds out about it. Sadly, we've never been more disconnected relationally yeah. you ladies have probably seen these stories of now the college dorms uh, because carla when you guys and we were back there i mean it was a crazy party fest with people having a blast and you you'd cram 10 people into this little bitty room yes. and now every every kid is in their own room on their phones yes and just the, the sadness of how we as a society continue to disconnect. But the reality is, I I mean, if if bees have a hive, people have a tribe. And we only survived by staying in our tribe as a species. You know, the cowboys had to circle the wagons against the Indians. So whether you're trying to overcome a trauma 
or just, you know, Monday morning life, you, you've got to find your people. I love telling guys at the end of your life, you'll have room for about eight people around your hospital bed, nine if they're skinny. So <laughs> how do you... <laughs> I love that, Israel. I love Find your people. Find, find your age. Make sure, because it's, it's been since college, since most of us have had real friends. Most of us have deal friends. The, the interaction of, of networking, what can you do for me? But a real friend can't do anything for you. The genuine, authentic, and those are the guys that are going to surround you when hospice nurse comes. Absolutely. And we wonder why our adolescents are experiencing so much depression, anxiety. And I think that has so much to do with it, Israel. I really do. So, and what I just learned is I need to make sure I have some skinny friends so I get more around the bed. For sure. I love it. Well, Israel, one thing I want to just tribute to your character as we go into close is I want this audience to know as much as you've been through the last two years, you just did a marathon. I don't care if you crawled, walked or whatever you did, but you crossed that finish line. And that just is such a tribute to your character. Yes. Thanks, guys. And I want to just thank you for what you're doing. I want you to keep up the good work. You are such an inspiration and motivation, not just to other professionals, but to your Listeners, you're doing such a good job. You're in your wheelhouse. It's evident. So we're so, so grateful. I'm standing to join the applause of everyone around for Mental Perks. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much, Israel. Take care. We enjoy talking to you. If you guys are in East Texas, please on I-30 stop by and see us. We, we will. definitely will. Thanks, Israel. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you or anyone you know is struggling with mental health issues, please reach out to talk to someone you trust. Get connected to a mental health professional who can help you find ways to cope and ultimately feel better. If you are having suicidal or self-harm thoughts or thoughts of hurting another person, please go to the nearest ER, call 911, or contact the National Suicide Hotline at 988. Thank you for tuning in to Mental Perk. We hope our talk today highlighted real people working through real issues based on mental health. Our goal at Mental Perk is to make sure every one of you knows you're worthy. We're in this together.